folks, welcome to Pickaxe and Roll, part of the Mile High Sports Podcast family. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. I'm the lead Nuggets analyst over at Mile High Sports. You can find all of my writing over there at milehighsports.com. Coming out with an article on Monday morning covering the Denver Nuggets and the luxury tax. I think that there are some interesting things that Nuggets fans need to know before kind of entering into full-on off-season mode where you talk about, okay, draft, free agency, trades, all of those things are important. I believe very firmly that Denver has a very important off-season, but in order to fully appreciate kind of the gravity of the situation, I wrote an article about the luxury tax and what they, what the Nuggets are sort of facing heading into this off-season. Want to talk about that a little bit in the second segment as well, but the first segment, we're only doing two today. I want to talk about the NBA Finals. I want to talk about the Celtics and the Warriors. Tied 1-1, blowouts going both ways. Very interesting to see in this three-point era that not really having that many close games in these playoffs. There have been a lot of blowouts, a lot of 20-point victories either way. I know I think this one finished up like 19 points uh, separating them, if I'm not mistaken. But it is just very interesting to me that despite the fact that both of these teams, I think, are very evenly matched, neither of the games have been exceedingly close. The Celtics pulled away in the fourth quarter, a 40-16 fourth quarter in game one, really dominated and really felt like they figured some things out. And then lo and behold, the Golden State Warriors, they win game two, they dominate, the game was pretty much over midway through the third quarter. Very interesting to see how both of these teams have handled their business, and they both look like they belong, honestly. I've been very impressed with both of these teams. What truly stands out about each of these teams, incredible defensive execution from both of them. You see a lot of quality play, no easy shots that are given up after, I think, the the Celtics, they kind of gave up a bunch of easy shots to Steph early in game one, kind of first half of game one, but after that... Steph has had to work for every single shot that he's had, and he's been fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but I think the Celtics have done their part to limit him as much as they possibly could, as well as everybody else. They're not giving up a whole heck of a lot to anybody else on the court, too. So you've got that incredible defensive execution. It feels like everyone knows what they're doing, and and that's something that I think Nuggets fans can sometimes get frustrated with, where it feels like the defensive schemes or... uh miscues kind of on on both ends of the floor can really, really hurt Denver. Denver was a pretty high turnover team this past year. They also had a lot of blown defensive coverages, despite the fact that they probably should have been better defensively. Like when they when they work pretty hard, Denver does, they, they're generally pretty good, but they have too many mental breakdowns. And the Celtics, the Warriors, they just don't have that. They've been so consistent over the course of these playoffs. It's It's not something that you you generally see from a whole bunch of... Well, actually, that's not true. Once you get to the NBA Finals, you've weeded out the bad teams in terms of staying focused and defensive execution and things like that. Those are things that you have to have as a championship contender, and it's something that the Nuggets are just going to have to learn. Another thing that stands out, Steph Curry, he is not a liability against Jason Tatum. This is borne out, I think, in both games, where Tatum was 3 of 17, in the first game, I think you could you could throw in Jalen Brown to this as well. Anytime the Warriors 
Like, they have Steph Curry defending on ball. He switches onto somebody. It used to be a bad thing. Now, six years later after the 2016 finals, it is no longer a bad thing. He's fantastic. He does so much on the defensive end. And I, I think back to game four uh, between the Nuggets and Warriors, and the Nuggets were hunting Curry in those lineups for, for whatever reason. I'm not really sure why. And they got lucky towards the end of it where they just uh, like too much attention was being paid to Nikola Jokic and other guys were able to step up. But they were hunting Steph. They were hunting him on switches. They were trying to get him into the action for pick and roll. And it just doesn't work the same way that it normally does. The Nuggets probably should have been hunting Jordan Poole that entire time, try to get him off the court. Because as it turns out, Jordan Poole, pretty valuable when he's going off, not so valuable when he's not. So Denver didn't really have a great game plan heading into the, the first round of the playoffs. And they probably, like, even if they had a better game plan, who knows if they would have been able to execute it. Like, I'm, I'm not here to say that they should have been much better, but they were pretty close to winning game five. Probably would have if they didn't have so many injuries that kind of hit them in the middle of that game. And it's not surprising to me that a guy like Steph Curry, though, with the way that he's defended the, the Celtics, they kind of ran dry in game two. Didn't necessarily have a great offensive game. And on the other side, Al Horford, uh, tricky Al Horford. He's, he's 35, 36 years old, however, however old he is. He is not a liability when guarding Steph Curry. I think that's fascinating. I think he's, he's just so smart and so capable that I have to imagine. I mean, I know that Nikola Jokic is not as good of a defender as Al Horford. He's not. But Al Horford is 35 years old. Nikola Jokic is going to turn 28 heading into next year's playoffs. I really do think that he has another level where he can get to as a perimeter defender. He's never going to be good on that level, but he can at least make Steph and guys like that work a little bit more than he has. Uh, whether he will or not remains to be seen, but I, I, I just have to think of it, that he's going to do that at some point. We'll see. And then both teams are switchable. That's the other thing that really stands out with this. These teams... They are so detail-oriented. They weather every storm. And whenever like the, the main coverage, whether it's a blitz, whether it's a drop coverage, whether it's whatever, whenever that falls through, they can always fall back on switching. Because, like I said, Al Horford can switch on to smaller guys. Steph Curry can switch on to bigger guys. Derek White, very feisty. Draymond Green, obviously one of the best switch defenders we've ever seen. They have so many weapons defensively on both of these teams that it has made things easier on the offensive end of the court. They get turnovers, they get more misses in general, and they're always constantly running, or, or at least the Warriors are just looking to run, trying to get out in transition. And the Celtics, they didn't finish as well at the rim as they probably should have this game, but they had their opportunities too. They just weren't really able to capitalize in the same way. With Golden State specifically, Steph Curry is incredible. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I think he's the best player in this series, and I thought that Jason Tatum might be. It, he's not. It's Steph. It's it's definitely still Steph. Draymond, though, he gets away with so, so much. It's, it's unbelievable watching him. He got that technical tonight in Game 2 
Uh, I think it was in the second quarter. And then he proceeded to just do a whole – actually, no, it was, it was the first quarter when he got it. He had to go for a long time with a with one technical. And he pushed the envelope so many times and continues to push the envelope that it's just very interesting that once you get that defensive reputation and once you kind of get the reputation, you, you uh, are ejected at various points. You are teed up and called for flagrants at various points. He now has has had the bar raise so much that a guy like, let's say, Austin Rivers, if he was yelling and screaming and just making as much of a bit to do as Draymond was on a consistent basis, then Austin Rivers would have like 26 technicals in the playoffs. He would be totally taken out of things. But Draymond kind of gets away with a lot. Andrew Wiggins for Golden State, he's their Aaron Gordon. It really stands out when watching this that he is able to pick his spots, Wiggins is, and uh, Clay has not been as efficient as he needs to be. Steph is their number one, obviously. Draymond kind of connects everything together. Aaron Gordon, kind of that super superfluous piece for Denver on the offensive end who kind of takes advantage of the spots where they are. Wiggins, I think, is sort of the same way for Golden State, and he's like he started an all-star game this year because of it. He's done such a fantastic job. And he doesn't need to be the third scorer. He can be the fourth scorer behind Jordan Poole, who's come in and been really, really fantastic. The best Golden State lineups, they include all of their stars, but the second best Golden State lineups are Steph plus a bunch of defense. Just when you've got a whole bunch of guys to choose from, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, uh, Gary Payton II, Kevon Looney, uh, Otto Porter is a great lineup option that they've had, and they can rely on Steph to be the main creator and draw so much attention that they can at least get by on the offensive end. And they know that if they throw out that lineup, let's say it's Steph, Gary Payton, Otto Porter, Draymond Green, and let's go Wiggins in that situation. They know that when they throw that lineup out, they're going to shut the other team down. They are not going to let them score. And it's really cool. It's really interesting. Steve Kerr has so many options that he can choose from. The starters, as we mentioned, they're awesome. But Jordan Poole, Gary Payton, Otto Porter, Nemanja Bielitsa, those are their other guys. Jordan Poole's been fantastic in these playoffs. Or at least he's been good enough in those, in those high moments that he's won them playoff games. Several against Denver. I think it's just very interesting that when you think about what their what their benches looked like over the course of these years, back in 2014-15, it was the bench that really helped them win a bunch of games. Then their bench got depleted as their starters made more and more money. Then they lost Kevin Durant and were sort of forced to get a little bit cheaper as they they had some down years there. And now you see where they are. They have a full bench again because their deep bench is comparatively really, really good. Guys that I didn't mention among that group, Jonathan Kaminga, Moses Moody, Juan Toscano-Anderson, Damian Lee has been very helpful for them at times. They just have a lot of guys. And James Wiseman's another one that like he just hasn't played because he's been injured, but he's a second overall pick and they still could get some good things from them. The only negative defenders in their rotation, though, are Poole and Bielitsa. That's two out of nine. 22%. It's pretty good. 
for Boston, Jason Tatum, really, really good. Jalen Brown, good, and has definitely had his moments where he's just been fantastic at times. Like in the fourth quarter of game one, he was great. But in the rest of this time, it it hasn't been special with him. And him not being able to dribble has really made things difficult. I think for Boston in game two, the story really has to be that their passing and their creation for themselves and others was just not good enough. Smart, Derek White, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, they can all create. They can do it, but none of them are elite passers. And it's why people thought that they might need an elite point guard or at least somebody that could see the floor really well. They couldn't create good shots consistently, and they couldn't finish at the rim at all. That's a really big issue. If you can't finish at the rim against the Golden State Warriors, then it allows them to play small. It allows them to play better offensive lineups. And then the Warriors will win. It's just that simple. Rob Williams being out really, really hurts. Or he's not out. He played like 14 minutes tonight, but he, he fell down. Looked like he hurt his knee at one point. Has been struggling. Has been in and out of the lineup. It wasn't their only reason that they struggled tonight, but when you rely on such a a shortened rotation in general, as the Boston Celtics do, take away one piece of that, it's like a house of cards where the rest can come crashing down real quickly. The options for Ime Odoka, like, they're probably better than what Golden State has in a vacuum, at least at the top, but I do think that their, their lack of depth here could really hurt them as the series goes on. Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Al Horford, those are their high-minute guys right now. Grant Williams, Derek White, Rob Williams, those are the primary rotation guys. And then your secondary rotation guys are Peyton Pritchard and Daniel Tice. I don't think either of those guys are as good as any of the options that the Warriors are kind of working with right now. And the deep bench is horrible. They've got Aaron Neesmith, who's a former first-round draft pick that just hasn't hit for them. Sam Hauser, Luke Cornett, Nick Stauskas, etc., That's just not great. It hasn't been good. So they need to get healthy. That's probably the biggest thing for them. But the only negative defender in their rotation is Tice. And then, like, I guess you could count Pritchard when he's working into switches. But their primary rotation doesn't include any bad defenders. It's pretty crazy what they've done. So if you're asking me what Denver has to do, kind of learning from these two teams, you just got to minimize the number of defensive weaknesses that you have. I think this past year, if you like, I think Jokic was a good defender, but just against the Warriors specifically, I think that was a real issue. I think if you're looking at Denver's rotation now and going forward, I think Monte, probably a negative. Bones, right now, a negative. Michael Porter, probably a negative. Will Barton, probably a negative. Definitely a negative for Will. Um, And then we'll see what Jeff Green and who that whoever the defensive backup center is and things like that. But that's like four guys already. And then like it's not like Jamal Murray is going to be a stalwart defensively when he comes back. I, I don't think holding him to that expectation is wise. So you've got to be better. You got to find a way. And that's probably where I would start with Denver's rotation. But I just really like watching both of these teams. The Celtics, I could see it from a mile away when they started playing well in February. We saw what they could do against Denver specifically. But right then, I knew that this was just a team that executed so well on both ends of the floor. They were, they're finding their, their destiny a little bit. Their, their ability to really come together really showed out. And the Warriors have had that ad nauseum. So not really surprised that they were able to do it. 
the only time when these teams are bad to watch is when Brown and Tatum get fall away happy, when they when they have too many shots where they're trying to dribble into traffic and then can't get anywhere, so they pull up from two, pull up from three, whatever. Sometimes they make those shots, but I think a, a time like tonight, they didn't make enough in order to keep this game close, uh, Jalen Brown specifically. So I'm really curious to see how this series plays out. It's one-to-one right now going back to Boston. I think it's trending Golden State, but like you're in Boston. So it's very possible that Boston gets both of these games or at least one. If Golden State gets both, then it's probably over. But if it's Boston, if they at least get one, then this series could go really, really deep. I'm very curious to see what these two teams have in store, because it has been kind of the cream rising to the top with these two teams. I think there have been the two best teams in the playoffs, obviously, but like that's that's not surprising since they're leading the Eastern and Western Conference. But more than anything, they, they've had the fewest weaknesses that they can really be picked at on both ends of the floor. And that's probably the best way to describe the modern NBA. So you can't have massive weaknesses and massive holes that other teams can exploit. Because if they do, you're, you're never going to move on. There's going to be a team, whether it's in the first round, the second round, the third round, or in the finals, that really picks you apart on that weakness. So you got to minimize those as much as you can. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about Denver specifically and why the luxury tax really scares me. We'll be right back. and roll Ryan Blackburn here. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you can, it'd be awesome if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Five stars, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast. That would be fantastic. Going to have a guest on on Wednesday. Going to try to get on an NBA draft expert over the course of these next couple weeks so that people can get, I guess, more official uh, draft analysis from somebody that probably knows it better than I do. But uh, I will do my best to get somebody good but for now, let's talk about the luxury tax because I'm writing an article and, and I'm going to post it on Monday morning that basically says that the Nuggets, there's a very strong possibility that they do not maximize what they should pay or they do not maximize what they can pay. The examples that I kind of give in the article are that Denver's at a certain threshold right now in terms of what they'd have to pay the luxury tax, but every single dollar that they pay for now, over the top of what they're already paying, it's going to be multiplied out and exponentially costly. Denver could be having a, a luxury tax bill that's as high as $70 million on top of the likely $170, $175 million that they have to pay in salary. So I'm just kind of worried that the Nuggets are going to be willing to do that. And whether they are or not, like, you're going to have to prove it to me. You're going to have to prove it. Well, here's where Denver could learn a bit from where the Warriors and the Celtics and what they're doing. Paying the tax, taking chances, it's good. You have to be able to do it. You have to be willing to do the hard things in order for you to survive. 
If you need to add something to your team, whether it be defense, whether it's another rotation piece or an upgrade, you just go get it. The Warriors last year, not even this year, it said a lot to me about their culture that they wanted to compete and maximize every single one of Steph Curry's prime years. And he's still in his prime, it's pretty clear. What he did and what they did, they paid $170 million in luxury tax payments. Kelly Oubre was somebody that they traded for just because. Just and because they had an open uh, exception, a trade exception that they could kind of foist him into. They didn't have to send out any salary. That move, when they did it, I think it cost them like $90 million or something absurd despite the fact that Ubre was making like $15 million or so. Them doing that, it showed me that they were willing to pay for whatever it takes. If your team feels like you need, uh, that they need to fill a piece, that they, they have to satisfy some requirement, that is an ownership that is willing to do it. You trust your culture to kind of hold up everything. You trust your stars to tie the room together. And then you pay for what you need to pay for and trust that you've put the people into the right places to succeed. And the Celtics did this too. Health is a requirement to get this far. That that seems pretty clear about what Denver should be learning from this. But what I really like what I've really seen from these rotation spots and from the way that these two teams kind of operate, they aren't the only teams that do this, but most teams. They trust like seven or eight guys. That's kind of where you have your trust guys, who you believe in, and they're going to play a lot of minutes, and you're going to trust your stars to play 40 minutes and just keep raising the bar. The Nuggets realistically only need like eight guys that they trust for a playoff run, and right now Jokic, Murray, Porter, Gordon, those guys are locks. As long as you believe in their health, and that's obviously a stretch with Porter, But if you believe that he's going to be healthy, then right now they they only need four other guys in terms of filling out the rotation as best as they can. Right now, the four other guys in kind of the the 2022-23 rotation, it would probably be Will Barton, kind of in that shooting guard spot, Monte and Bones coming off the bench, and probably Jeff Green, somebody who's trustable, who's versatile as a kind of a big man slash forward switchable guy. It could be Zeke Nagy, it could be Jermichael Green. Those are the only other two options. Denver still has to fill out the rest of their rotation here. Is that good enough? Do you trust those eight guys that I listed? Jokic, Murray, Porter, Gordon, Barton, Morris, Bones, Jeff Green. Do you trust those eight guys to be good enough? Maybe some people do. And it's possible that that is good enough. I don't think it is. I think that Denver has to find some more defense in order to make it work. So, you go shopping. You try to figure it out in the draft, in free agency, with trades, however you want to do it. The Celtics, they traded all of their depth. Any possible answers that they signed that they added in previous years with Dennis Schroeder, Josh Richardson, guys like that, and they got a guaranteed answer in Derek White. Derek White's been fantastic. He's been very, very important for what they've needed. Hasn't been, like... Not every series is his series in terms of the matchups, but he became very important for the Miami series. Wasn't as important for the Milwaukee series, but he'll be important for guarding Steph Curry. 
that's for sure. The Warriors did it differently. They had their main core, Steph, Clay, Draymond, Wiggins, Kevon Looney, Jordan Poole, Andre Iguodala, though he hasn't been healthy, and James Wiseman, I guess like you could throw him into the background of any plan that they had. But the Warriors added Gary Payton, Otto Porter, Nemanja Bielitsa, Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga. They had Juan Toscano Anderson already. They had Damian Lee already. They added so many other capable options, whether they be first-round picks or minimum contracts or whatever, in order to ensure that of the 12 or 13 guys that they had that they might be able to trust, they could ultimately settle on 8-9. to nine. But they had to get to that place organically. The Celtics, they traded for that answer. They made sure that they solidified it, which both of those blueprints are fine. That's fine. The Warriors, though, they are paying hella money to keep their team. On top of paying that $170 million tax bill last year, I think they're at $50 million, $55 million in tax this year. Just tax alone. Doesn't include the $155 million in salary or so that they're already paying. I don't think that the Nuggets can realistically mirror that blueprint, but maybe the, the 12 to 13 guys that you pair down to 8 or 9 rotation players, that could be something that Denver tries. Now the Celtics, they're paying... Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but the rest of the rest of their major rotation players, they're all on reasonable contracts. Derek White, he's making about uh, fifteen million this year. Marcus Smart, he's on an extension, but he's making fourteen point three million this year. They traded for Al Horford, who's making twenty seven million, but he's got a non guaranteed, or at least it's not fully guaranteed amount for the next season. So they could move on from him realistically if they needed to. I'm not sure if they will. Maybe they'll renegotiate a new salary for him. Something that pays them a little bit longer, but a lot less money. They've got Robert Williams that they signed for a good extension. Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard. Those guys are on rookie scale contracts and they're pretty good. So they've found a way to stay affordable, even though they're going for it. Even though they have a really strong roster. Now, the rest of their roster, behind kind of the main eight or nine guys that they have, is really bad. And it's really cheap. Like, they have Luke Cornett making 600000 Sam Hauser, 300000 Malik Fitz, 200000 Jawan Morgan, 19000 Those guys are players that they added kind of later in the season. They didn't necessarily have those guys as options after the trade deadline because they, they kind of had to piece together various trade packages in order to just get Derek White. So it's very interesting to think about how these teams kind of built their their roster, how they got to this point. And Denver could probably take notes from both of them in terms of roster building and, and what those teams needed to do in order to get over the top. Now, the Nuggets are paying Jokic, Murray, and Porter. They're paying those guys big, big money. Three max contracts. Jokic will be making super max. Aaron Gordon, he's not far behind. He's averaging about 20 million, 21 million for the rest of uh, like the next four years. Can the Nuggets afford to build the same level of supporting cast that the Celtics and Warriors have if they're paying all four of those guys big money? I think it's a fair question. And 
it's good to have affordable pieces to kind of make it work. Like Monte Morris, Bones Highland, both of those guys are affordable for the next two years. Zeke Naji, affordable for the next two years. Jeff Green, $4.5 million for next year. That's a pretty reasonable number for a guy that just was a starter for you for the entire season. Will Barton, he's on an expiring contract. I guess that he's probably going to be the guy that they look to move. But whoever they get in his place, maybe they get multiple guys, possibly multiple options. Maybe they look for an upgrade. Maybe that's how they do it. They, they find one guaranteed guy that they know is going to be a part of things. Or they try to take multiple bites of the apple in the way that the Warriors did. Although I, I don't know if I would necessarily believe in that uh, from the Nuggets perspective because they need somebody that they can trust as a defender. I'm, I just don't know if they're going to be able to get to that guy by trading Will unless they go for a permanent solution. The numbers I currently have for my article on Mile High Sports tomorrow. Denver currently has $159 million in salary tied up to 11 projected players. Now, they have eight currently, but that includes Jeff Green opting into his player option, Jamichael Green doing the same thing, as well as them drafting somebody with the 21st overall pick. So what this kind of comes to is $159 million in salary plus $16 million in luxury tax payments. That gets you to about $175 million just for 11 players. $175 million out of the Kroenke's pocket. If Denver does the following things, let's say they re-sign Austin Rivers and DeMarcus Cousins to reasonable contracts, kind of what I've appraised them as their value. Let's say they sign someone for the taxpayer MLE, the full taxpayer MLE. That's the maximum amount that they can pay. It's about three years, $20 million, about 6.6 per. And then they add a veteran minimum to kind of fill out the roster. Just somebody, a, a Maybe it's a third center or something like that. Then it's up to about $175 million in total salary. So you add basically $16 million in salary. But what it does is it adds $70 million in luxury tax payments. So Denver goes from potentially paying $175 million for this roster to $245 million total. Now, fans are not going to necessarily think much of that. It's a very pricey roster. You pay for, well, you get what you pay for, basically. Denver feels like they have three all-stars, including the two-time MVP. They're going to have to pay for it. They're going to have to show that they deserve it. But I also think that Denver could be trying to cut some extra salary. Like, is Jermichael Green going to be paying, going to be playing a big role next year? If not, they might look to move him. Jeff Green, if he opts into that deal, maybe the same thing. Perhaps it's Will Barton. If they don't believe in him as a starter, maybe they just look to move him for less salary coming back. Maybe they attach a pick to Barton, Jamichael, Jeff Green. Maybe they just trade Monte Morris for a future second round pick without, or a future first round pick without taking back any salary because they believe in Bones. I think that's. That would, that would definitely make Denver worse in terms of any of those moves. Like you want as much talent, as, as much veteran contribution, guys that you trust. You want a whole bunch of those guys if you can get them. You want players that you believe in. If you do something different and you, let's say you trade 
Jamichael Green and you sign a, a minimum contract type of guy in his place, it's possible that that guy steps up into a similar role. It's possible that that guy is better. It's way more likely that he's not because all these other teams are looking to pay guys money. They're looking to get their own competitive pieces that could really be helpful for a championship team. Can Denver really expect to get one of those guys for the minimum? Probably not. So I really do think that this summer, it's going to have a lot more financial ramifications than Josh Kroenke said that it would on Friday. I think there's going to be questions about if they're trading guys for getting under, not under the tax, but like to get a little bit cheaper, to afford the, the luxury tax payments a little bit more. And the more that you do that, the less you're trading to get better. And that's definitely kind of counterproductive and going against what the original plan was, what was declared. Now, the Milwaukee Bucks, they are clearly competing for titles. I think there's no doubt that they're that they're competing. They paid luxury tax this year. They gave Giannis Antetokounmpo the Supermax. They gave Drew Holiday a max, basically. And they're paying a whole bunch of money. But they also let P.J. Tucker go in the process. And do you think that P.J. Tucker might have been helpful against uh, J- Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, all those guys? There's a reason why the Heat took it to seven games. There's a reason why P.J. Tucker was on the court when they needed him most. It's because he was trustable. And the Milwaukee Bucks, they lost a trustable guy. And as a result, they were ousted by the Celtics in the second round. Maybe P.J. Tucker's the difference in some of those lineups where they had to play Brooke Lopez despite him being a little bit slower. Or they had to play Pat Conton or uh, Grayson Allen or somebody like that when they could have played P.J. Tucker. Those are big decisions. And it's those kinds of moves on the margins that don't necessarily get looked at as like, okay, this is definitely not the most important, but everything contributes. Everything could potentially be the difference between winning a championship and losing a championship. So if you're not all the way bought in, then I think that's a problem. I also think, kind of down the line, based off of what we're seeing from all these teams, that Michael Porter Jr. might get dealt. And it probably won't happen this summer. Probably won't happen. Uh, maybe it won't ever happen. Like it's It's very possible that he comes back. He proves that he's healthy. He looks really good, and maybe Denver decides, hey, we have our formula. We believe in our guys. We're going to pay for it. If things don't go well next year, but Michael Porter still shows that he can be capable and still productive as a star-type piece, then maybe another team is willing to take on that salary, and Denver tries to get cheaper in the process. That would not surprise me at all. Whether it's the right or wrong thing, I don't know. Like, I'm still trying to figure out what my take on Michael Porter is. Like, I think he's a talented third piece, but I'm not sure if he's a guy that you're guaranteed to have on the court when it matters most. And if that's the case, can you pay that guy a max deal? Like, we're just going to have to see, and we're going to have to wait and see on the health too. So Denver might get into those discussions as well. And it's a financial discussion because if you're trying to keep Jokic and you're trying to keep Murray and you're trying to build the most competitive roster around them and ownership says that they're only willing to pay X amount of money, then there are going to be 
ramifications. There are going to be some changes. And it would not surprise me if they kind of went against this for one year, if they said, hey, look, we're, we're paying for this team for one, one season. And then they're like, whether they win a title or not, and they're like, yeah, let's see if we could get a little bit cheaper. So we'll see. We'll see what they do. I'm uh, I am always kind of going to default towards uh, negativity and and kind of realism in this case because I I just I can't imagine them going through this offseason and not trying to find ways to trim some of the fat. But I do think that like like we could see Denver trade a second rounder to sell off Jamichael Green or something like that, and it could be worse. Like if if that's if that's what happens, then Denver can still win a title. Jamichael Green is not essential to Denver's playoff push. Could he be helpful in a game? Yes. And that's where you have some questions. So we will see. Hopefully Denver still makes the necessary improvements to their team, but I am very curious to see how they handle this offseason from a financial perspective. That is going to do for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll. Brought to you by Mile High Sports. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate all the love and support as always. I'll be back on Wednesday with Anil Lapiro of Mile High Sports. And we're going to talk about media. We're going to talk about the Nuggets. We're going to talk about MHS. Should be a lot of fun. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys soon.